the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Introducing Group Captain Terry Wilson, AM, AFC. Terry grew up in the Swan Valley. The vampires from Pierce Air Force Base constantly flew overhead. And along with the prevalence of lots of material about World War II air exploits, not to mention Biggles books, Terry was bound to be very keen on all things aviation. He graduated the ducks of his Air Force Apprentice Engine Fitter course in December of 1960. In 1964, he started his long-coveted pilot training. He felt at home when he got to do flying training on the very same vampires from his childhood. Terry's squadron flying on Sabres started at Adabale of Butterworth with three squadron. He was lucky enough to be one of two bogeys selected to fly one of the eight three-squadron Sabres from Butterworth back to Williamtown in February of 1967. His Sabre flying at Butterworth also involved detachments to Number 79 Squadron at Ubon in northeast Thailand, associated with the Vietnam War. After conversion to the Mirage in 1968, Terry continued flying fighters through until the end of 1973, when by then he was a Category A Mirage fighter, combat instructor. Surprise, surprise, Terry then moved to a career on Iroquois helicopters. He was awarded the Air Force Cross for flood rescue work. In November 1977, Terry started a six-month stint on peacekeeping helicopter operations in Egypt as executive officer with Austair United Nations Emergency Force at Ismailia on the Suez Canal in Egypt. In late 1981, he began working as the chief planner and commander-elect for a possible ADF deployment to a peacekeeping operation with the multinational force and observers in the Sinai. When that deployment was confirmed in early 1982, Terry had to form a new joint unit comprising eight Iroquois helicopters and get it to the Sinai to be ready by 25th of April 1982. Terry was made a member of the Order of Australia for his work on this operation. He then became commanding officer of No. 9 Squadron at of Amberley. After leaving the RAAF in October 1990, Terry spent six years at the Bureau of Air Safety Investigation in Canberra. He then moved to a senior management position in the Civil Aviation Safety Authority. Terry was then asked to be head of flying operations for Impulse Airlines, now Jetstar Airways. Since 2008, Terry has been a volunteer member of the Historical Aircraft Restoration Society. Well, Terry, thank you very much for your time. Um, I've got to ask the obvious question. I know that you grew up in the Swan Valley and planes flew overhead. Was that your motivation for joining? Why did you join the RAAF? Well, uh, I'd always been mad keen on aeroplanes ever since I was a young kid. Uh, before we were at Upper Swan, I was on the vineyard at Caversham, and that was in the training area for the for the aero club you know, at Maylands. And there was always Tiger Moss doing aerobatics overhead and things like that. And then later on, uh, there was the uh, Citizens Air Force Squadron, the Reserve 
Squadron, Squadron, yeah. City of Perth Squadron. They used to fly around there and the Mustangs initially, and then there were vampires, the single seat vampires. First jet I ever saw, quite awesome. Yeah, I can still remember as a kid too, flying overhead the vampire. It just looked stunning in the sky. So was this while you were at school? Oh yeah, or even even younger. I was always mad killing aeroplanes. I read all the Biggles books. So did you keep them? No, I didn't. No. <laughs> That's a shame. I think I've got ten because I also read them all as a kid. So did you join the ATC? The air no, training? that was it. Was interesting how I ended up getting into the Air Force because I went to a local Midland Junction High School or Governor Stirling as it was then. And yeah. Because I was at Upper Swan and I fell my way, there was no ATC handy to me. So I joined the Army Cadets at high school. Um, Interesting. We used to go around, I had a cousin and we used to go around this place and play tennis about every Sunday. He was in the ATC and he told me about the Air Force Apprentice Scheme. So I thought, oh, that sounds... how old, roughly, would you have been then? About 14. 14, right, yeah. yeah. So I thought, oh, that's interesting, I might have a go at this. So I got all the information and applied and interestingly I got in and he didn't. It's interesting that you joined the Army Cadets. Surely being in the Army Cadets at school would have ingrained in your head the Army, the Army, the Army, but then you still moved over to... Oh, no, I was always... Always aeroplanes. Aeroplanes, okay. (laughs) So you end up... You did that course. Was that with the RAAF? Yes, yeah. So, uh, yeah, my parents put me on a train at uh, Perth to head across to Wagga, Wagga. I was 15 years and two months old. Gosh. And, uh, you know, it took us about three days to get to Wagga. You arrived there about two o'clock in the morning and thrown in the back of a, a truck out to the base. They gave you all your kit, including a mattress, which you had to carry up to your hut. Obviously, you start the course. It's an engine fitters course, is it? Is yeah, it? well, initially, you, you do a year of general fitting, things like filing and chipping and yeah. all those sorts of things, machine shop. We did everything. We did blacksmithing, carpentry, Gosh. you know, and all those sorts of things. And then towards the end of the first year, you got the opportunity to say what trade you were like. Fortunately, I got the one I asked for. A lot of people didn't. What, um, what was that? It was engines. engines. So yeah. I wanted to do engines. That was the sort of the, uh, the, if you like, almost the end of the piston engine era. We in the third year we had to do a major overhaul of an engine. The course before us did the Merlin engine, yeah, and we were the first course to do the Neen jet engine out of the uh, single seat Vampire. So doing that course, can you re- remember what you were thinking about? Well, is this really in the Air Force? Am I really? You know, because I want to fly. I want to get into those planes I saw flying overhead. So did you, did it seem like a dead end to you? Or? No, not really. I mean, uh, I had the opportunity to do the leaving certificate at night school they had the number one flight in the first two years of was uh, what they called the boffins flight yeah we did the leaving certificate at night school and i uh, managed to get, gain the leaving certificate and it was all aimed towards eventually getting to fly so everything to you was this is the path i want to follow well I, you, you did actually rather well on the engine fitters course you you duxed yeah that's right congratulations by the way <laughs> thank you and that was in 1960 yes yeah we graduated in 1960 then i got posted to laverton we did yeah, everybody did this you did a year at a what they called an aircraft depot where they major overhauls were going on in the case of engines ours was the, the then new avon engines from the canberra so uh, that was very interesting I, I enjoyed that what were the steps moving from working on engines to starting to learn how to fly a plane well from there i went to 34 squadron at fairburn which was the vip squadron and i sort of got a bit of a step along the way there because they were flying the uh, convair 440s in those days with the, the premium vip aircraft that used to carry around the likes of robert menzies and people like that did you meet um, them? Yes. Oh, good. Um, Go on, sorry, I and, interrupted. Uh, I got an opportunity. They flew them as a three-crewed aircraft up the front with a pilot, co-pilot, and a flight engineer. The flight engineer didn't do a lot, really, apart from read the ignition analyzer and call out checklists, but at least it got me airborne. So flight. was that your role? Yeah. That third seat? Yeah. So, 
Go on, sorry. It gave me the opportunity of travelling all around Australia and PNG and wherever those days, carrying around the VIPs, including the likes of Robert Menzies. Where did you step from that third seat? So then? I then applied in my uh, second year at Fairburn. I applied for pilot's course in about the March. And I went and did all the things you did, the medicals, interviews. And they said, well, you're in, but uh, you can't start until January next year because you've got to do your return of service for your apprentice training. The Air Force. Yes. The Air Force, Terry. And lo and behold, when I turned up to on number 53 pilot's course the, that following January 64, I found there were three people off the apprentice course after me because they'd changed the rules. Okay, so you're now into the pilot's course. Yep. How did that involve? What what sorts of things did you have to do? Well, that was uh, a standard thing for the pilot's course. We did about 125 hours on the windjill at Point Cook. Yep. You know, you initially, you didn't get to fly the thing. We started in January. You didn't actually get to fly the windjill until May. That time was taken up by ground school. Is the windjill dual cockpit? Dual Yes, yes. So you, your trainer was with you in, when you were flying, yeah, when so you was, did fly? Yeah, it was side by side in the windjill. You just went through all the, the various sequences for the 125 hours. There was tests along the way. I know a couple of people I've spoken to in talking about the early days when they were learning and going through the course, they all worried about being scrubbed out. Oh, yes. Did that play on your mind? Yes. And, and in, how did you deal with it? Well, you just gave it your best, and especially for somebody being an ex-airman, there was a lot of motivation, though, because you'd go back to where you were before, yeah. having failed the course. And start again. Start again, so, yeah. But you didn't fail the course. You no. you did progress through. Yeah. What were your trainers like? They were they were quite good. I mean, they were, they were varied people, depending on whether you got fighter pilots or you got transport pilots, uh, but they were all uh, very experienced people. I, I enjoyed it by and large. I didn't do all that well at Point Cook. I enjoyed the windjill, but I didn't enjoy it as much as the following aircraft with the vampire. Yeah, we'll get to the vampire. Yeah. Were there any close calls in your training in the windjill, mid-air collision? Not for me, but uh, um, early in the course, um, we had a collision. Uh, what happened was uh, they used to land on lanes. They'd set up lanes on the grass airfield. One of the lanes was a glide lane, which was a steep approach, and the other lane was a flapless lane, which was a shallow approach. Yes. And two aircraft, were, two windjills were doing, with students in them, a solo. One was doing a glide and one was doing a flapless, and somehow they ended up in the same lane and they collided. So, so one collided into the back of the other, is that yeah. what you mean? Yeah, I was just turning final approach and I saw it all unfold in front of me. I saw sparks coming up and I thought, what's that? And it was, it was the propeller of the one of the aircraft striking the the, the, the rear of the other yeah. one. Yeah. Then the other aircraft just came up and rolled over and, and, and flew into the ground inverted. And then you had to land after that as well. Yeah, well, what happened was it was it was interesting times because there were about 12 aircraft around in the circuit and a few of them were on their first solos. So you can imagine what that was like. Yes. And they, the instructors then told us to divert to uh, to Laverton. So we all headed over to Laverton and this giant gaggle of 12 aircraft, some of them on their first solo. Because I'd had some previous flying experience, I thought, oh, the safest thing for me to do is go out somewhere in orbit until this sorts itself out. <laughs> Wise decision. So the windshield is prop. Yeah. The vampire is not prop. What were your steps from windshield to vampire? And and what was the first flight in your vampire, the, cl- the plane that you admired as a kid? You finished your course at Point Cook. Then you just headed over to Pierce and uh, started off with ground school there mm. and then into the first flight on the vampire. I can't remember anything startling about the first flight in the vampire. I certainly remember the first solo. Um, tell me about that. What do you remember about that first solo? Well, it was just... I'd worked on the vampires initially at, when I was at 34 Squadron. I'd always been interested in the aeroplane. I wanted to go flying it into 
34 but didn't ever get the opportunity go with one of the other pilots that used to come out to fly them there I was sitting in this vampire thing well at last I finally made I'm sitting in this thing by myself and uh, away I go and I just thoroughly enjoyed it what was special about the vampire I mean I all I know is what it looked like but in it and flying it what was it like did it perform well did it perform badly once it got airborne it performed well you know, they used to joke about quite the curvature of the earth to get airborne just about it was uh, once you got airborne it was delightful airplane to fly you know to have them put together good airplanes over the years and uh, yeah, it was do you think it would have been like in a an aerial combat with with another plane well I mean it depends on what you what you're fighting um, it uh, it would have been would have quitted itself quite well against a similar type of aircraft what was its firepower again these were the two-seater vampires the side-by-side vampires yeah and uh, when we flew them appears they didn't have any guns in them at all but later on when we flew them as the fighter lead-in trainer at Williamtown they had two 20 millimeter Hispano cannons the single seats had four 20 millimeter guns in the wing or no un- under the nose under the nose yeah, yeah. they could carry um, bombs under the wings and they also carried the old three-inch rockets it could have been a well-equipped fighter jet yeah and for the day for the day a, a day fighter the move from vampires to sabers was that when you were posted overseas no, no. We were posted over to Williamtown to do the Sabre conversion course yep. from Pierce. It was quite. A, that was another thing that uh, I felt was interesting for me because I, having come from a transport background as an engine fitter, I was very keen to go to Hercules. So towards the end of the course, you got your choice of uh, what you put in your posting preferences. I think I put uh, Hercules first, Maritime second, and uh, Fighters third. I thought they'll never send me to Fighters. Lo and behold, <laughs> they, they, sent fight. they sent me to Fighters. <laughs> what was your attraction for the Hercules? You're in a jet, surely that gives you a greater thrill than a large aeroplane. Oh, yeah, it was just what I was used to at 34 Squadron, I think. I yeah, was, fair know, enough. The, the transport world. And what would have maritime involved? What, what was that was the Neptune in those days. The Neptune was built for what purpose? There was a maritime patrol, anti-submarine work mostly. What does it compare like in terms of size to the Hercules? Oh, it's a bit slightly smaller than Hercules. It was two piston engines and two jet engines. Right. Developed at the end of World War Two. You have flown Sabres and Mirages. Yeah. Could we just spend some time time talking about your experience with both of those but the sabre first you talked about the elation you felt in a sabre take us through that in what way well the first flight was what i was really talking about was the performance was just so different to the vampire there was no two-seat sabre so uh, what you did is you did the uh they called simulator but it was really just a procedures trainer and you did some time in the procedures trainer then you went out and uh, you sat in the aircraft and you started it initially just ran the engine then then later on you you taxied it Um, which was a, an interesting time because the, the instructor used to stand on the wing while you taxied it. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's an interesting way to well, teach someone how to yeah. fly. No, no, that was just for the taxiing. It had nose wheel steering and you had to get used to that. So you ta- just taxied around the top. So how many times did the instructor standing on the wing fall oh, off only, the wing? No, well, he didn't. <laughs> he did. But surprisingly, he didn't because sometimes people would forget to keep the button pressed and start <laughs> spearing off in a different direction and stomp on the brakes. Anyway, from there... You then went uh, out first time in the Sabre, you taxied out to take the thing flying uh, with an instructor and chase. So the instructor came along behind you, you lined up on the end of the beginning of the runway with the instructor and Ashley. And there's radio contact between you and the instructor. wind the engine up to full power and uh, look at the instructor and it gives you the thumbs up and you release the brakes and the thing that stuck in my mind was uh, there's a concrete part of the runway the first part of the runway is concrete and it's, it's only about 500 feet long and by the time we got off that it was uh, already showing 50 knots and I thought wow this is really something before you know where you are 
you're at uh, the liftoff speed or past it, finally get it airborne, then you find out that it's really sensitive and roll. Mm. So you've spent a lot of time trying to keep the wings level. That's when you sort of find yourself going through a thousand feet or so, still going straight ahead and trying to get straight and level. While you're doing that, trying to acquire that skill, are you li- still listening to the instructor or are you more focused on what I'm trying to do? Oh, you're focused on what you're doing. I mean, he, he was quiet, Delenn, until he said, go on, be a devil, try a turn. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm heading a straight ahead, you know, still concentrating on keeping the wings level. Why was that the case? Uh, it would, is the sensitivity of the, of the steering? Or? Yeah, was just so different to the to the Vampire. It's quite, very sensitive because it had powered. The initial uh, aircraft, was, one of the initial aircraft was powered controls, powered flight controls. So they were hydraulically powered by jacks out in the wings. There was no mechanical connection uh, other than to valves that operated these hydraulic jacks in the wings. And there was artificial feel. So uh, you had bungees, you know, just uh, like springs that gave you the feel. And that was uh, augmented by a, a big bob weight. So that as you increasingly pulled more G, it made it harder to pull back on the stick. You'd rate the plane, not compared to today's planes, but you'd rate the plane as the best of the best then? Yeah, then it was. Yeah. It was great. And it, uh, it performed really well. And it would go supersonic in the dive. That flight control um, situation was such that the controls were reasonably heavy at slow speed. There was no change in field depending on what speed you were going. So uh, it was reasonably heavy when you're at slow speeds. But when you're, say, 600, knots, which you could do, you'd be like sitting on a billy ball, you'd just twitch and you'd have a lot of G on. Uh, what's this about cleaning out the cockpit while you're airborne in a Sabre? Oh, well, that was something. When I was a uh, 77 squad, I ended up, towards the end of my time there, I ended up doing maintenance test flights and uh, one of the fighter combat instructors told me about a good way to clean out the cockpit, which was uh, essentially to wind the canopy back. So if you, if you got below 215 knots, you could open the canopy. which uh, was With fresh air blowing across the top of you, is that what you across mean? the top of you, yes. You didn't try to be Joe Kill and stick your elbows out because you just so lose how did the co- did, it, did it slide straight back or did it go up? And no, it, it just slid straight back. Straight back, yeah. Yeah, it was electrically operated and you slid, you just opened it. That so, must have been a thrill. Oh, it was. It was good. Obviously, go down to slower speed, wind the cockpit back and then get rid of the stuff that you're cleaning out. Is yeah, that what? well, that's what you did. You just, he, the way he told to me is just do that, just in the inverted push forward stick which gave you negative G and all the detritus in the cockpit or if there's anything in there would end up in the canopy then you just carefully put on a bit of rudder and it directed a breeze through the canopy oh, and cleaned out the cockpit. But what was in the cockpit to clean out in the first place? Oh, there'd be there'd be stuff that people couldn't get to when they were cleaning the cockpit and got down behind the ejection seat or bits and pieces like that. Just general bits of detritus that ended up over the time. Just take me through the different squad. You were, you were posted to 79 squadron in Ubon, is that correct? Yeah, well, the initial squadron I was posted to was three squadron. Right. Butterworth. And it, uh, towards, at the end of the first year, it uh, was going, was disbanding and going back to, uh, to re-equip with Mirages. Right. So uh, at that time I, I got the opportunity, we flew eight aircraft back from Butterworth to Williamtown, which right. was an interesting trip. In what way? Oh, well... For me, it was interesting because in the leg between Changi and Singapore and Bali, I thought I was going to run out of fuel. Yeah, that's interesting. The two fours about 20 minutes apart, and I was in the rear four. And uh, we had external tanks on to give us the range, and they feed into the main tanks. Mm. And the only warning you had when the external tanks were finished, there was no gauge on the tanks, was that there would be a light that would come on and tell you they'd finished feeding, and then the main fuel gauge would start dropping. Well, mine did that about 20 minutes before I expected it to. So I worked out I was going to arrive at Bali with all 
almost no fuel and uh, we had a very a short runway for a Sabre to land on 5,000 feet when we normally landed on 8,000 so yeah. I was a bit worried about that getting there with almost zero fuel and having no opportunity to for a go round or run out of fuel. You obviously didn't run out of fuel? No, or? well what happened was uh, we stayed up with my, with my, my lead, I was the number four and uh, with my element lead the number three. We had a bit of discussion over the radio about what we were going to do we stayed up at 45,000 feet until we virtually overhead barley to yeah. conserve the fuel and then started descending and in the descent all of a sudden the magic happened the light went out and the fuel started feeding again just take me through you talked about the 5,000 8,000 necessary if you'd been very low on fuel when you're landing is it you require the fuel to have the jet give you an after to have the jet slow you down or no 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 it was only in case that uh, 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 i may messed up the, the landing on the short runway how's the fuel significant in that context well, I, i'd need fuel for another to do another circuit and land oh right when the saber lands when the wheels are on the ground what stops you just the brakes just the brakes yeah it was quite critical as it had a narrow high pressure tires and uh, it could be a bit tricky and they would have blown if well you could blow them if you stood on the brakes too hard quite easily because so it, it had not- no anti-skid like the vampire had. What knots are you required to reduce to to actually put the wheels on the ground? Oh, you're around, down around about 120 knots. That's still pretty fast. Yeah. So those brakes must obviously be very, very good to stop yes, the plane. Uh, yeah. The incident where your number four called it, it had a compressor stall. Oh, yeah, Tell well, us about that. That was my last Sabre flight. Your last Sabre flight. <laughs> We'd been, we were um, expending all the old three-inch rockets, the, the sort of World War II type three-inch rockets. They'd reached their use-by date, so we were having fun going out to the Song Song range, which was quite close by to Butterworth, and firing them off. So the Sabre, we, you, you could carry a... Uh, what was it? The, about five. There were five stations on each wings in the yep. ones we were flying, and you could tiers of three. So there was 30 rockets under the wings. At that stage, I got to where I was leading fours and eights and whatnot. So I was leading the four out to the range. Just after takeoff, I heard uh, my number four call out. That he's had a compressor stall. Tell us, because I don't know, what would that have meant? Well, that meant he just lost all engine power. Um, just after takeoff, I, I did a very tight turnaround to have a look and see what was going on. He, he just zoomed up to a bit of height. His lead, number three, was yelling at him to eject. I yelled at him to eject. He said, no, I'm landing straight ahead. What had happened was that we'd had a U, U, United States Air Force person visit the base not long before that. He talked about surviving crash landings and how you survived a crash landing. And I think this influenced this young guy to say, oh, well, the ejection seat's not so good, so I'll try the crash landing uh-huh. thing after listening to this guy. Well, what happened? Did he well, crash land? Or? He did. He landed, put the wheels back, back down again and landed in a, a dry paddy field, broke off the landing gear, broke off all the rockets, which was fortunate because that absorbed, absorbed a lot of energy. Right. And yeah. it slid along on its belly towards the end of this paddy field and in, into the big drain on the side of the paddy field, slid sideways, broke the port wing off and that caught fire. So there was a fire going in the port wing and we're flying around overhead looking at him, couldn't see him getting out of the aircraft. Then all of a sudden this figure popped out of the aircraft, ran along to the end of the wing, the wing, the, not the non-burning wing, and all of a sudden came to a violent stop. He'd forgotten to undo his dinghy lanyard. That stopped him, but he soon got rid of that and got clear of the aircraft. And it, then the aircraft engulfed yeah. in flame. Yeah. Well, he, well, obviously, that US Air Force person who gave that lecture, that was good. <laughs> obviously good for that particular pilot. And that was your last flight? Yeah, last flight in the same. So. And what happened then? Was it a, a conversion to the next level, into yeah, the Mirage? Well, yeah, that's, that's when I went to the Mirage. And where did you do that conversion? I did that at Wormtown. So, uh, so you'd come back to Australia yeah. with the Sabres? You flew them back oh, to Oh, no, no. From there, after that, 
when I flew to Savers back, I went back up to uh, Butterworth, and I spent a bit over a year there yeah. at number 77 Squadron. And yeah. that included the time at 79 Squadron and Newbon. Right. Just tell us what the experience was for you as a then clearly a young air pilot in a foreign country in an area where potentially there could have been conflict and was conflict. Yeah, it was a very enjoyable time for us, really. We were really just great fun. It was particularly well later on when we went to 77 Squadron because a lot of the experienced people had gone to um, to the Mirages, you know, being moved on to train on the Mirages. So it was a squadron of young, very young people. Sure. We had a great time. The Sure, there were there were some things going on with uh, some local problems with uh, the, the, the racial riots that were sure. happening at the time, sure. but they didn't affect us too much. I mean, the only thing that really affected me that I remember is uh, we had to go down and do a, a jungle survival course at uh, Singapore, and to get across to Penang Airport to go down to Singapore, we had to go in, a, in an RAF Belvedere, which was a twin rotor helicopter, which I had no desire to go into. <laughs> but apart from that, we weren't affected too much by the race riots. Is there a difference in culture? Different in attitude between I mean you're in 77 squadron you're in 79 squadron are they uniformly the same or is there a different attitude among the the personnel within the two different squadrons oh they're very much the same because they're all the people from those squadrons that went to 79 squadron for example so it was very much the same I didn't notice any difference between any Mm. of the squadrons there and on the Sabres so that uniformity of attitude is across all of the different divisions within the Air Force would you say? Well, there are different cultures in fighters and transport, those sorts of things. So because 79 and 77 are both jet fighters, yeah. that's the culture's the same. If you'd gone to a, a Hercules squadron, for example, you, you, there would have been a difference, Oh, very much so. In what way? Well, fighters are very much a gung-ho sort of a, a world, if you like. It, it has to be. It's a, it's a high-performance uh, uh, world, if you like. draws certain characters. I mean, I was a bit unusual, probably, because I was a quiet sort of a person, but yeah. you get a lot of uh, extra I have a friend who was a jet fighter pilot. He tells me I'm always on time because I was a jet fighter pilot. Is that Oh, that you do develop those habits, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. I even joke about these days. Being on time. Being on time. Yeah, yeah, well, so does this person. He's got a <laughs> weird sense of humour. So you're now into the Mirage. Yep. How does it compare? How is it different? Oh, quite different. Tell us how. Really, well, just because of, the, because of its performance. I mean, the Sabre, the, you know, the takeoff speed was you know, somewhere around 120 knots. The Mirage, it's 175 knots. So mm-hmm. that gives gives you no idea. Landing speeds are much the same, around 120 and then landing speed or final approach speed 175 knots at the end of the approach. It's quite different. And um, the landing is also different? Yeah, the, the landing is different. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a high nose attitude. It's a delta wing, a high wing loading and it uh, takes a bit of stopping. Fortunately, it had anti-skid brakes, but it also had a, a brake parachute. You talked about the length of the airport needed for a Sabre 8,000 and the 5,000 was challenging. Yeah. What was necessary for a Mirage? The Mirage was, was 8,000, still the standard, standard Air Force airfields for those sort of aircraft those days was 8,000 feet. It was quite adequate for the Mirage. I mean, we always used afterburners for takeoff. You could do it, a dry power takeoff as they called it but we yeah. didn't do them. But there's no cockpit uh, opening in, in, the, in the Mirage, is no, there? No, there isn't. No, no. It's, got a, it's got a clamshell kind of thing. That would be disastrous. If you had to pick out one or two things, what do you remember most 
most about your time in the Mirage? Probably the uh, some of, some of the intercept uh, roles were uh, were quite challenging. Head-ons. The Mirage radar wasn't all that great, so you're trying to pick up a, a small target. Sometimes we had Mirages as targets. So if you were doing a head a head-on sector type intercept, we had one called a snap-up, which was from 10,000 feet below the target, and you were about 30 degrees off the if you like the uh, head-on. What is a head-on? Yeah, head to head, one Looking like we're looking at each yes, other now. Exactly. The two jets looking at each yes. other. Yes. So you're about 30 degrees off that. So coming in 150 degrees from the rear, if you like. Is that what I would call, or Biggles would call a dogfight? Well, more an intercept is what we we call them. Okay. You would get into the dogfight after that if you got into close to guns range, for example, or something like that. If the could be done on missiles as well to the sidewinder. Tell us about trying to teach radar navigation while flying in formation. Well, that, that was certainly an interesting time. No radar in the two-seat Mirage, so we, when we were teaching people how to do radar navigation, we had to fly in formation on them. That made it quite interesting. You would fly along in formation, generally um, reasonably close formation. It was visual. You didn't have to stay all that close. Yeah. And they'd be working their radar, so they'd, they'd, they'd be looking down trying to pick features on the radar and navigate by radar and you'd be trying to teach him, you'd be saying, looking inside the cockpit at the radar, looking back at him, and then we had a, a like a poor man's moving map display which you put manually and you, you'd work out roughly where you should be, you'd put it to the origin and find out some radar features and then you'd look at the radar and try and pick out these features, work the antenna to get it, work the gain and find a feature. Then you'd say to the student, well, if you put your uh, antenna down this far and you back off the gain a bit, if you look so many miles out, you'll see this feature. What is it? And you're trying, mm. trying to find out what he's seeing on his radar, what he's doing and what he's finding. And you, what... This is happening. You're in another We're fly, mirage. If, You're yeah, flying in flying, so and he, flying formation. If he's in the cockpit by himself and he's got to be doing this by looking down. I mean, I'm only used to driving a car and I've always got to look ahead what's coming up. How is he able to fly the jet and at the same time look down and navigate well, that's, the radar? That, that's the thing you had to watch out for because they'd, they'd get distracted by the radar or focus on the radar entirely and not keep track of what was going on elsewhere flying the aeroplane. So it's and a case of doing both? Doing both together. And when you're flying along um, in formation with him, the key to that, you'd see the, in, the blow-in intake doors that gave you auxiliary air if they started cracking in, you'd, have, you'd know that his air, he wasn't watching his airspeed and it was getting slow, slowing down. This is while you were a uh, combat, a, a fighter, fighter pilot, fighter, fighter combat instructor. instructor. Yeah, it was challenging when on a on a visual day, but you'd do it in cloud as well. They'd do it in a real circumstance. If it was a cloudy day, you'd still go out and do it. Any so, close calls? Uh, well, not necessarily that like close, but a one incident I remember was uh, was an experienced fighter pilot and we were doing a high-low radar navigation exercise so we'd finished the high part and we were starting to descend for the low part and we're going downhill everything seemed to be going well then we broke out of cloud and I thought there's something wrong here and then I realised what it was and that was the ground was above me not quite above me we weren't quite inverted so you were... we were almost inverted he hadn't been paying attention to his uh, attitude instruments and was focusing on the radar and he'd just allowed the aircraft to slowly roll over and I just followed him because I was in cloud and I obviously hadn't checked for a bit either <sighs> we recovered from that we weren't all that close to the ground but it was just another lesson learned you've had a 
couple of uh, interesting <laughs> incidents, Terry. Um, tell us about the incident over the Woomera Weapons Range. We were out there, um, we took three Mirages out there to um, support the rapier missile trials. It was a, a ground-to-air missile that was wire-guided and they were doing trials out at Woomera to see how they could acquire fast, low-flying aircraft and, and track them. We were asked uh, at one stage of the trials to fly as low as we could and as fast as we could. Well, according to the Flying Order book, as low as we could, it was 250 feet, so we somewhere around there. And as fast as we could was the limit of the aircraft at that uh, level, which was 750 knots. And wow. that is absolutely awesome. Uh, you're doing uh, 12 and a half nautical miles a minute, a nautical mile every five seconds. So uh, I was flying along doing this. It just uh, so happened that I flew over a character who was defusing a weapon. There were the uh, RAF had some Canberra bombers there that were, were dropping an air-to-ground missile right. that was guided. One of them hadn't uh, exploded, and this guy was defusing this weapon. While you flew over and, it. And, yeah, as luck would have it, my track took me right over the top of them just as he had his hands in this thing defusing it. So there I was. He didn't hear me coming, of course. And there I was, you know, at about... Uh, couple of hundred feet right over the top of him with a sonic boom he thought all these days please tell me the bomb didn't go off no it didn't go off but <laughs> he obviously had he almost had a, a heart attack heart attack yeah and uh, later on the mess he left me in no doubt about what he thought of me so that was with 76 squadron 76 right? squadron yes you'd gone from 77 to 76 is that what had happened how did you end up in 76 because yeah, you yeah, started did, on I the did, mirage i did my mirage course and then i went to 76 for about 12 months and then i went back up to seven to butterworth to 75 Gotten. How did you end up in helicopters? And how much of a shock was that? Well, I'll start off with how I ended up. I'll start off with it was a shock. It was a very big shock. It was such a big shock that I really investigated perhaps joining the RAF, but at the time they weren't taking fighter pilots. In fact, they were, they were getting rid of fighter pilots. So that's an indication of what I thought about going to helicopters when I was first posted. Right. The reason I was posted there, I found out later on from the, uh, the, the then OC of Williamtown, when I went back to do a joint warfare course, he said, oh, the reason you were posted there was they were looking for some new blood. So uh, myself and my friend Peter Spurgeon, they were both on the same fighter combat instructor course. Mm. We were both sent to helicopters at the same time. And the idea was that we'd go to helicopters and we were going to be promoted to squadron leader in a year's time. And we'd become one of the squadron executives and try and sort out these helicopter squadrons that were a bit out of control. Yeah. And they did that two years in a row. That happened the year before with some other people and then, uh, then with Peter Spurgeon and myself. So I wasn't too happy, but... Uh, was the squadron either 5 or 9 squadron as far as the helicopters uh, were I, concerned? I was posted the 9 squadron, so right. I went to 5 squadron first to do my helicopter conversion. That's on the Iroquois? On the Iroquois, yeah. yeah. And that was interesting because I, I went there and there was only, from my apprentice course we talked about before, there were only two of us that went to become pilots. And the other person was a friend, Mick Haxel. He was there instructing, so he was my instructor on the first 50 hours of Iroquois. Did you end up being happy with that posting? Yes, I did. What turned your, well, your mind? Well, it was just a, a totally different role and unlike fighters where you you flew from the base and you went out from the base back to the base generally and hardly went anywhere else and helicopters it was a totally different thing you went out and supported the army or in support of other tasks sure you went out by yourself with maybe one helicopter or you went out with two or three or four and you went away for days at a time and you managed a detachment when it was away from the home base so th that sounds like a, a greater range of training that you're acquiring by being in a helicopter squadron than you were in a fighter squadron yeah it was different. It was just apples and oranges. Yeah, sure. You're now with the squadron. You're now an effective, you're a wonderful pilot of a helicopter. You do flood rescues. Where did that occur? Well, that occurred up in Brisbane. Uh, justice for me, being able to go out and help, because I, when I was posted to 
science quite normal. My stuff was sent up to uh, storage in Brisbane and it was washed away in the 1974 flights. Uh-huh. So a couple of years later, I was a, uh, I was a flight commander and uh, we had a call out for a flood, flood rescue work. So I went down to the squadron and there were people on standby to go. One of the people turned up and then the other person didn't turn up. The other pilot was due to go, so it was getting a bit urgent. So I stepped in and became the pilot in command and went out on these flood rescues up around Warwick. We started off from Amberley and went up to heading up towards Warwick. We only got a little bit away and we came across this big flood uh, along the way between Amberley and Warwick across the road and there was a semi-trailer stuck there with a driver on the roof so we plucked him off. That was the first one. So was that with the winch? Yeah. Yeah, right. Pulled him up then we went up to Warwick and then the Condamine River was way wide flooding and uh, there was a woman, her house was in the the middle of this flooded river. The water was up to her windows and she was stuck in this house. She was in the house or on the roof? She was in the house. Uh, So how did you get her out? So we had the hovered over the top. Great work by the crewman. We had one crewman inside directing me, holding me, and I had no reference because it was just water and there was no no reference to hold the hover. So he did a great job. Then we lowered the other crewman down and he managed to drag this woman out through the window, put her onto the winch and get her up into the aircraft. I wrote him up for an Air Force medal and he, he got that and he deserved it. I've often wondered why the Royal Australian Air Force would have given all the helicopters to the army rather than kept them themselves but it just goes to show the diversity that the Royal Australian Air Force had in this time when it had both jet fighters and helicopters. So did you end up in the Sinai in helicopters or did you go there as a, as a jet fighter pilot? No I went as helicopters. And I went there twice. What was the purpose of going to the Sinai? Was it 1982 or 1980-something? Uh, first time was in 1977. Or right. We've been there since 76. That was the United Nations Emergency Force 2. We were based at Ishmaelia with, the United, with that emergency force. Um, we had four Iroquois and about 40 people, and we were totally self-contained. We had our own cooks, our service policemen, about 40 people. So we were based at uh, the El Gala Airfield in Ishmaelia. Uh, we lived in a hotel in town called the Sinai Palace, <laughs> Sinai which Palace. a palace it certainly was not. And what was your brief? What was the brief given to you? Uh, we, we were supporting that there were four battalions in the buffer zone, which was just the other side of the Suez Canal and the, the eastern side, I guess it was. So we supported them and uh, with logistic support, supplying the battalion, uh, the company headquarters and things, and also taking them on recce's of the of the zone. One of the interesting things we did was we on the recce's was spot the Bedouin. They were really good at camouflaging themselves. They, the dress they wore blended in with all the, the sort of almost like saltbush type things in the, in the desert. <laughs> it's like, where's Wally? <laughs> um, you were there twice. Yeah, so I was there for six months the first time and uh, then came back and uh, I went to I went to a staff college over in Canada and then I came back and I was in Air Force plans and then uh, when I was there I was... I was uh, operating with the uh, Kangaroo 83 they had a Joint Force headquarters and I was in that in Canberra here yeah. and uh, I heard about a possible peacekeeping force coming up in the beginning of 82 so I thought oh that sounds interesting so I put in a posting preference in the morning uh, morning, a couple of days later and it was the quickest uh, response I've ever had to a posting preference that afternoon about 3 o'clock I got a, a phone call you're going back to the sign well he said are you serious and I said yes he said the job's yours <laughs> <laughs> so is that when you were CO of Nine Squadron? No, I was before I was CO of Nine Squadron. That was I was operating in Air Force plans then. So what happened then was I uh, I was uh, towards the end of 1981. I was then posted to be uh, the, the commander elect of the. Uh, the multinational force and observers mm. and I had to do the initial plan so my job was the chief planner 
and that was that was a, her- a, ter- a terrible time because the government had made our participation uh, conditional on the EC4 as they called it was Britain and Netherlands yeah. France and Italy and uh, we weren't allowed to have any contact with the MFO headquarters and so we didn't know what we were sending so I was just sitting there doing lots of what ifs about we were, had a given that it was going to be a joint force so I was doing combinations of Caribous, uh, Kami Kai was Iroquois, with not knowing what was going. Anyway, to cut a long story short, eventually we were allowed to meet with the MFO. What was the, the MFO? The uh, Multinational Force and Observers. They okay. sent a, they sent a team out on the fourth of February. Bearing in mind now, we'd been told we had to deploy helicopters that were going by the Tobruk, so they had the Tobruk had to depart on the eighteenth of February. We're now the fourth of February. We've just found out what we're sending, which is eight Iroquois and a hundred people, and we knew then that was New Zealanders were sending two and. 30 people. Yeah, it all it all went from there. You said when you moved over to helicopters, you'd been told this is a, a step to becoming a squadron leader. Did that happen? Yeah, well, I was I was the commander of the uh, first contingent to the MFOs, so and I went over there on the advance party in uh, in early March. We had to be there by the thir- by the 20th of March, the whole contingent, and then commence operations on the 25th of April. We just made it. We formed this. We had to form a new unit because. CDFS wanted it to be a joint service unit, so yep. we, we had some Navy people. We had an air traffic control or flight following role, so we had an Army air traffic controller. And so that, we, that was formed at, uh, at Amberley. I had to leave that. I went on a recce, then I went back on the advance party, and we started from there. So what were the steps to becoming wing commander? Well, I was, I was a wing commander at that stage. Yeah, at that stage, yeah. right. How long after that before you decided to retire? Well, uh, quite a while after that. I, I did the Sinai thing, and then I came back. I was a CO9 squadron for two years. Then I... I introduced the Black Hawk into service, selected it and introduced it. I was the head of the Black Hawk selection and introduction project. And what were the reasons for you deciding this is the one to get? That, that much like I think some other people have told you, selecting equipment was a bit of a challenge because the political side came into it and Australian industry involvement was a high pressure to give it to the people who are going to give the best Australian industry involvement, not what was best for the Air Force. Yeah, I had to fight that all the way. The Americans had developed a standard for a hot and high operations, density, high density altitude operations, and I just kept pushing that, and the Black Hawk fitted that perfectly. We had a lot of pressure to get the... Um, the Super Puma from the, from Europe. Yeah. And we've just gone through this again. Yes, uh, yes, yes, um, we have. And uh, I managed to resist that. And fortunately, I had Kim Bisley was the Minister for Defence and I had a lot to do with him and he was on side. We keep on coming back to two names of the most recent interviews we've done, Kim Beasley and Mr Ray, yeah. in terms of their commitment to the defence and being prepared to actually listen to people like you and when recommending certain things. So if you had to pick out one or two things, Terry, what are your most enduring memories of being in the Royal Australian Air Force? Probably the apprentice course uh, overall. I mean, we still, uh, I still have coffee every morning with seven or eight people off my apprentice course every Thursday morning. That's the engine fitters course? Oh, off, off the whole course. Off the whole course. There were 104 of us graduated. Yep. We've kept very close over the years. So that's that's been a highlight of my life. And then the flying side, uh, it's pretty hard to pick, but uh, being a fighter pilot was absolutely wonderful. And uh, yeah. and then going to helicopters, I mean, the, the, the job for helicopters, the, the pick of the jobs was the uh, being a chief planner and then having to go and, and bear the fruits of your plans. And yeah. fortunately, it was very successful. Almost as a last question, when did the fear of being scrubbed end? Oh, at Pierce. At uh, Pierce. Yeah. At Pierce. Thank you very much for your wonderful contribution even the collisions you witnessed and almost running out of fuel you've had an illustrious career with the royal australian air force and being the second oldest air force in the world probably the best air 
force in the world, given the size of our population, you've made a wonderful contribution. And so thank you, sir, for your time. Thank you, Gareth. I'll enjoy it. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which is one in a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.